Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. There's so much going on in the news these days that it's sometimes difficult to decide on what the most important stories are. To help us sort some of those things out, we're joined now by one of our show's favorite guests, Robert Henley, an award-winning print and broadcast journalist who specializes on the economy and politics. And you can hear his WBAI shows Monday mornings. He also reports regularly for Salon and a number of other prominent news organizations. His book, Stuck Nation, Can the United States Change Course on Our History of Choosing Profits Over People, is published by Democracy at Work. And I'm very pleased to welcome Bob Henley back to our show now. Hi, Bob. Hello. So I'm speaking to you from my desk at City Hall, so the sound may be a little bit different than listeners are used to. Oh, well, so you're in, in town now instead of in New Jersey. Exactly right. You've written a lot about the freight train derailment in Ohio, and you've pointed out that in the news coverage in the press and on TV, there were lots of interviews with local, state, and federal officials and statements from the Norfolk Southern Railroad executives but what was consistently missing from the reporting was that of the union railroad workers. Why do you think that was? Well, I think in the first, uh, and I would say that was that piece was written for Work Bites and then picked up by Salon within days after the event. In that period of time, uh, newsrooms and reporters uh, used the Rolodex that they have, which generally do not include the labor perspective. And so in those initial damage assessment reports, we got the assurances from the government, which is now at this point kind of performative. Those of us who are familiar with 9-11 remember the, the era safe to breathe um, uh, song and dance. And um, after a while, I think no small part to my work and others like the lever and uh, also the United Railway uh, workers that are uh, have come together. That's a coalition of um, the 12 different uh, unions that make uh, steel glide on steel, um, they have bent the arc of history. And so we did see that conversation change, I'm happy to say, uh, within two to three weeks of the catastrophic toxic uh, insult to the community and to the workers. Well, what about the unions? The New York Times has an article today about how Democrats are finally, in some states anyway, paying more attention to the unions. Uh, the, well, I, the unions have been the obsession of Republicans, but Democrats haven't really uh, done much to defend them. Well, I, we have to go. Uh, one of the reasons why I do think that this uh, story changed and now what we're seeing is a, a new uh, dynamic uh, coalition, if you will, of lo the local community people that were in Carter communities like East Palestine and the unions coming together. And this will, I believe, redefine American politics. Um, the reason why historically, just look at what just happened um, in uh, the past uh, year prior to uh, going back to before Thanksgiving, you may remember that uh, Secretary Walsh was the point person for Secretary of Labor was the point person with uh, for President Biden to settle the rail strike. And what ended up happening was the president kind of, I think, misrepresented the nature of that contract. He said that it was resolved and there were some wage gains. But what ended up happening in reality, because either he took his eye off the ball or just wasn't aware of what was happening on the ground, a majority of rail workers voted that deal down because it lacked basic sick time off. 
And as someone who worked on the railroad and the Ura Lackawanna Railroad when I was in college, I can, it's a, these are military organizations. And so if you don't have built in sick time, you are really abusing your workforce. This is the kind of uh, thing we run into with all kinds of first responder jobs that are military organizations. So, and that, uh, what Biden ended up doing is going and doing something that George Bush had done, um, the elder, and going to Congress under the Railway Act and forcing them to not exercise the right to strike, but to be forced back to work by Congress who have all the sick time they want, even though a majority of people had voted against the contract. Hmm. That was President Biden's Christmas gift to railroad workers. And so then this event happens and all of a sudden, butter can't melt in their mouth. They're doing nip ups to try to catch up to the fact that they were not in tune with the struggles of working people. Well, the malfunctioning train uh, put workers in life-threatening jeopardy. Were they aware that cars in that train and also the one in Pennsylvania uh, were carrying hazardous materials? And what do we know so, about this third Norfolk Southern train derailment in Alabama that's just been reported? So that appears not to have the same kind of uh, hazardous load. Uh, it's very important to start this conversation with the basics. So uh, in the 1980s, some uh, we had 47 class one railroads. We are down to seven behemoths right now. We have replicated the political economy of the time of Theodore Roosevelt when we had political cartoons about um, how the public was victimized by the robber barons. They're back. And they're in the form of hedge funds that bought up railroads, squeezed out the workforce, put in their pocket over $100 billion of profit and laid off 30% of the workforce. Trains are going to go off the rails. So you get that kind of greed driving the uh, railroad industry. And that's what we have. On another front, you've reported on how New York labor unions have been in the forefront of the latest drive to secure permanent funding for the 9-11 World Trade Center health program, which will run out of funding without congressional action. What's the story there? Well, so the Zadroga Act uh, was passed, the Victims Compensation Fund, and built into that was the idea that um, anyone who was uh, within the confines of what was defined as uh, basically there's two maps, and it's important to understand this distinction, to participate in the World Trade Center Health Program, if you are a student, um, a commuter, just a human being, if you were south of Houston and in some portions of Western Brooklyn, you're entitled to uh, uh, lifelong World Trade Center health care um, coverage. Um, if you uh, well, have some, I was I was there. Uh, well, and and, this but, is something, but I, I haven't been I don't think I was affected. So does that mean I, that you I, can't I, say that you can't say that. And so that's another I know I do want to delve into that. But the other piece of this is that. Uh, so the World Trade Center Health Program was created. There were some close to a half million individuals that were potentially dosed by these toxics. So you have about um, figure uh, about 80, 90,000 first responders. Those individuals, as a matter of right, have um, annual health screening that they get free of charge. Survivors, however, have to be able to prove that they have symptoms. And in order to qualify, we have some 20,000, imagine, K through 12 uh, kids that were ordered back into schools by Michael Bloomberg, who now potentially have uh, this huge lifetime exposure. And so um, while 80 to 90 percent of first responders are signed up, less than 10 percent of survivors are signed up. And so what's happening is 
the program is getting more and more people signed up. We've now lost more people, actually, to the occupational exposure after, of course, the EPA and the Giuliani administration and Whitman said the air was safe to breathe. It turned out not to be. And so now that's kind of what we're in the middle of right now is an ongoing, in fact, deepening health crisis. Consider that the police lost 23 officers on the day of the attack. They've lost 10 times that number to the occupational exposures that they got um, in the seven months after uh, during the cleanup. And it continues. Uh, Edward Kelly, the president of International Association of Firefighters, told reporters we're in the second month of the year 2023 and already we've lost nine members of the fire department in New York to World Trade Center related illness. That's right. So remember, 343 firefighters died in the day of the attack with the collapse of the towers. And now that number is well over 300 who have had the occupational exposure. And so in many ways, this ties into the whole question of East Palestine and the burden put on corridor communities. One of the things we saw is that um, it's very important people to understand that the inspector general, the EPA, confirmed in 2003 that the EPA actually did not have any scientific basis to make the recommendation that the air was safe to breathe. And in point of fact, they concealed information about um, the level of contamination, particularly of asbestos. And this was done, and it's been documented, just look it up, don't believe me, uh, that the White House Council on Environmental Quality, along with um, uh, the Bush administration, and I have no doubt the Giuliani administration, wanted to keep Wall Street open. So in that sense, this area was a corridor community, equally as vulnerable and expendable as East Palestine. And, and weren't 9-11 World Trade Center advocates dealt a setback in December when the full $3.7 billion appropriations needed uh, was reduced to just $1 billion during negotiations over the $1.7 trillion omnibus spending bill that was pushed through Congress before the Democrats lost control of the House of Representatives? Yeah, imagine this is a revolving door and they're giving uh, something away on the other side and you've got like a thousand people trying to get through. That's what happened here in the Beltway. Um, they had to clear out. They lost control of the House. And so in that process, of course, when they're weighing options, who's expendable? Well, civil servants, retirees, you get the gist. And so that's what happened. Uh, they had to move their $850 billion military appropriation. Can't hold that up. And so in the process, um, we got uh, goose eggs. And then at the last minute, uh, I guess they were looking around in the Senate cloakroom and the cushions, and they found a billion dollars to tide it over. But what about the other people who were there? Uh, there were 20,000 New York City public school students and thousands right. of teachers and support staff that were ordered back into the schools in the contaminated zone and uh, 10,000, 10 of thousands of, of college students attended schools like Pace University and the borough of Manhattan Community College in the World Trade Center hot zone. So will we be seeing more people affected over the years, uh, those people? As That's happening now. We're now. We have at least 25,000 working cancers um, through the World Trade Center Health Program. And one of the other distorting factors, and I've written a lot about this, uh, particularly when I was at the Chief, is that because the 9 11 uh, responder population was skewed so heavily male, uh, what ended up happening was women um, who were uh, first responders uh, were such a small percentage that their cancers were overlooked and dismissed 
because it was all based on statistical analysis. So if you had uterine cancer, you were out of luck. But if you had prostate cancer and you were a guy, thumbs up. And so that's kind of uh, just now they finally certify uterine cancer um, as a qualifying World Trade Center cancer. So had they opened up the program without making this distinction between survivor and civilian uh, first responder, we would have had a more um, representative uh, natural population of females and probably these reproductive cancers would have been certified sooner. But the reality is uh, this is an ongoing battle. It's important for people to sign up even if they don't think that they currently are suffering with a health effect because the degree to which we identify new cancers, for instance, breast cancer in men was something that came up as a consequence of this. The sad part about this is that people are are traumatized by the events and often they think that the World Trade Center Health Fund or BCF is only for first responders. And the reality is that anyone who is down here who was part of bringing back lower Manhattan for the for the city, for the world, they are, in essence, a kind of hero. And well, how, they owe it to themselves and their families to register for these programs. Well, how culpable is the, the, the federal government after the 9-11 attack? Didn't the EPA offer reassuring statements that the air was safe to breathe? And didn't the White House <laughs> no. Council on Environmental Quality convince the, a, the EPA to add reassuring statements and delete cautionary ones? Yeah, exactly. And that's what I was saying. One of the things about this is that uh, and it it makes um, to some degree when the government does these reassurances about the environment and particularly when it's a question, we got to get the rails open back up. That's right. Can't hold up commerce. No matter what, we got to get that uh, vinyl chloride to where it's going. Uh, When that happens, when the imperative of commerce totally trumps um, public health and occupational health, you have the kind of outcomes that you do. And so it's also important to understand that that's why I think that this East Palestine is becoming, like Love Canal, a defining moment in American history because we do remember 9-11. We do remember the promises of Superfund where billions of dollars were supposed to be earmarked to clean up toxic weight sites and our grandchildren, our grandchildren can go see that no progress has happened at these sites except the lawyers have gotten richer and nobody in rack trucks has come to even clean the places up. Well, the fight continues, doesn't it? New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand is one of the lead sponsors of the 9-11 Responder and Survivor Health Funding Correction Act. And she said that the growth of the program was needed due in part because thousands of the survivors were children at the time of their toxic exposure. Has has the bill received bipartisan support? It it, it would say Gar- um, Congressman Gabarino um, and D'Esposito, two uh, uh, members that are in Congress now, Gabarino took over for um, Peter King as a congressman who distinguished himself. Um, as really helping to bring 9-11 World Trade Center Victims Compensation Fund to fruition. So there is some sign that even in this um, uh, this partisan environment where the insurrectionists are in control, at least the lower house, um, there is some hope. Um, I do think that the other thing about this is uh, in, in many ways, um, this is a an important occupational health uh, uh, bill too, because it's not just that it helps the people that are suffering um, with the, the, the some 69 different World Trade Center certified cancers or the myriad of uh, skeletal and uh, respiratory issues, digestive issues. 
But it's also really pushing the envelope for us to better understand occupational health in general. One of the things that people need to keep in mind is that the these corridor communities through which these hazardous materials go that make 21st century possible it's life itself possible are places that at a moment's notice one bad decision can all of a sudden find themselves in a potential Bhopal reality. And in America, the people on the front lines of this and our volunteer first responders, it's important to understand that we still very much have, while it's in the 21st century, in many ways, we have a 19th century system where people uh, volunteer, both for ambulance and fire across this country, and a majority of them do not even have a self-contained respiratory device to be able to protect their lungs if they fight something like a vinyl chloride fire. That is America today. It is as shocking and as upsetting as the images we saw of the Triangle Fire. That's our 21st century Triangle Fire. Our guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org is Robert Hanley. Uh, yesterday, Bob, opponents of the campaign to push New York City municipal retirees into a profit-driven driven Medicare Advantage health insurance plan held a rally on the steps of the Smithsonian Museum across from Battery Park. What's that? What's the issue there? Well, so this goes back to the fact that there are some 250,000 retirees uh, in uh, the New York City uh, civil service system, um, some 300,000 active. And um, the Municipal Labor Committee, particularly dominated by DC 37, which is the second largest union um, that represents everything from the folks that uh, are the engineers for the water system to the to the people that serve lunch to our school children. And then the UFT, um, United Federation of Teachers, uh, I guess around 200,000 members, um, uh, got through yet another attempt at something called moving to Aetna Medicare Advantage. This is very controversial. Wait, so Aetna is the one that winds up with the, the insurance business? Well, they, they at least with the retirement uh, piece, the Medicare Advantage, the city is also in the process now of putting out a request for proposal uh, for active members. Um, and so one of the things to understand is that historically, and this, this is very convoluted and in the weeds, but uh, one of the things that uh, to keep in mind is that one of the uh, retired health city workers were always guaranteed as part of what's called deferred compensation that they would have premium free health care for the rest of their natural life. So if we look and compare salaries, it's estimated that city civil servants were making on average 30 percent less than someone who did something similar in the private sector. And then part of that covenant, that social contract, if you will, was this idea that there would not be a premium. Uh, at the end of the, I guess, in the de Blasio administration, the unions and de Blasio, Mayor de Blasio negotiated some healthcare savings. There was a healthcare stabilization fund created. Um, what ended up happening was um, that that fund is, is running dry. Um, we, we do not have uh, universal healthcare. Um, and so when it, uh, the Medicare Advantage approach offers you the ability to have some federal subsidy um, if you sign up for this plan. So it's in essence kind of a cost shifting where some of the cost is shifted over to, um, to the federal government. And of course, this looks like, well, nobody's going to be no harm nor foul. But the reality is, if you've been following it, Medicare Advantage as a strategy is increasingly 
under scrutiny by regulators because of the fact that there have been too many instances of um, uh, uh, gatekeeping and blocking people's access to essential life-sustaining care and um, and healthcare surveillance. Well, and it's so, a profit-driven plan, isn't it? Exactly. And, and hasn't, so now, hasn't Patrick uh, Faroulu, I, I don't know how to pronounce his yeah, name. For the, yes, from the corrections captains, right. Asked why any labor leader would be endorsing a profit-driven scheme like Medicare Advantage? So I, I think it's important to understand and to be fair, because um, we have to point out that the UFT, Michael Mulgrew, and Henry Garrido, executive director of D37, uh, believe that they have made uh, the best deal they could because to a large degree, to be honest with you, there's been so much pushback from retirees. Uh, Marian Pizzatola, uh, the New York City uh, Organization of Retired, um, they have really pushed back hard. And so they believe the city unions, the bigger ones at least, believe that they've gotten a better deal where they've really pushed back on these kinds of um, pre-authorizations. But you're, the the bottom principle is that the American labor movement, some very big, uh, the AFL-CIO, our, uh, our, our union SAG-AFTRA, have already sold out to Medicare Advantage programs. Mm. And so it's really kind of a crisis within yeah. labor. Uh, on one hand, at conventions, they'll talk about universal health care. Yeah, SAG-AFTRA about- pushed me into a, uh, an Aetna plan. Right, exactly. And meanwhile, Aetna is, as they will, if anyone reads uh, Aetna's uh, 10K, they disclose that they're under investigation right now by the federal government. And so the model, the way that they are making their profit um, is through various gatekeeping mechanisms. And I, I there's been a considerable discussion right now that this could actually, this reliance, because we're seeing a majority of people now signing for Medicare Advantage, it could actually financially cripple uh, Medicare, because of the fact that they've introduced this this profit incentive into the program, and so ironically, we're seeing President Biden even talking about raising taxes um, as a way to fund Medicare. And so, it is an, a serious open question. Um, and Professor Joshua Freeman, uh, the noted labor historian, for a quote for Workbytes, a place I write, made the observation exactly what you were saying: Why would any labor union? endorse something that will undermine one of the great achievements of the labor movement, which was Medicare. Hmm. Now, you also, well, you cover the the whole tri-state area. So uh, let's talk a bit about New Jersey. What reason has New Jersey's governor, Phil Murphy, given for the decision to end the New Jersey corporate business tax surcharge that brought the state $600 million from big corporations like Amazon that had made hundreds of billions of dollars in COVID windfall profits. Well, so his um, rationale is that, as expressed in the budget address and in in appearance on Bloomberg, was that there was a promise that when this was put in place, it's temporary. And this is all part of the over, you know, the the kind of propaganda that, well, now as COVID settles in the rearview mirror, America can go back to the same exploitative um, scrap heap that it was before. And so that's kind of what's going on here is that he wants to send a signal that New Jersey is open for business. Um, and the reality, though, is that if you are following any of these issues like education, like public health, this country is not springing back so quickly from a mass death event where over a million people died. 
and several million people have long-term disability related to COVID. In fact, we have an unprecedented issue in the form of the suspension of in-person instruction for kids. That's not something we did even during the Depression or World War II. And there's fallout and consequence to all these systems. And so now um, the political parties and those people that are um, that are captive, I believe, to corporate interests um, uh, just want to brush past all that. And even though it's certainly of something as consequential with a higher body count than the depression. Remember to get out of the depression, Leonard, I mean, you don't remember, but um, the idea was being that it was I'm a old, but not that old. Right, right. It, it was a multi-year response. It was a multi-year response capped off by world war to get out of where the depression had left this country. We're having a similar, maybe even more traumatic event in the form of COVID. And these folks in the Beltway that are owned and operated by multinationals want to get on with it and do not want to look back at the damage that's been done to the society. Now, the Council of Foreign Relations. Well, first of all, does it matter that Phil Murphy can't run for re-election? Does that protect him in something like this? Well, I I think that what uh, protects him, I mean, right now he's, very interesting. He has got himself, uh, he's now the chairman of the National Governors Association uh, and also a vice chair of the Democratic Governors Association. Uh, he has been made the, uh, he's part of the A-team that the White House is putting together. The Washington Post reported on this and so did Politico. There are several uh, luminaries, including Mayor Adams and Mr. Murphy, Governor Whitmer, you know, promising individuals who might be rivals. What better thing to do than to get them as part of the Husky team to pull the 80-year-old president into a totally friction-free primary? So that's what he's up to now. The Council of Foreign Relations has pointed out that income and wealth inequality is higher in the United States than in almost any other developed country, and it's rising with large wealth and income gaps across racial groups. So yeah, it's yeah that's yeah. Is that all part of what we're talking about? Was that related to COVID as well? Well, what's happened is, uh, and this is something that where you have to get behind the numbers, which is why I love to come on your show because we have time to do that. Um, we did pass the expended earned income child tax credit, and that was part of the American Rescue Plan. What that did was uh, pull like some forty percent of. Uh, Uh, single, you know, uh, children uh, in single parent homes out of poverty. Now, uh, in typical roller coaster fashion, um, thanks to Senator Manchin, uh, we decided not to continue that. And so there was this blip, which even the New York Times flagged, where we saw poverty decline uh, for children. Now that is all going to go back up. All these programs, rental assistance, the whole nine yards uh, are being suspended because they want to get back to the business of making the rich richer. Mm-hmm. I mean, sadly to say, that's America's pyramid scheme. We're still in a situation now where this country taxes labor at a higher rate than idle capital. And as long as you have a country set up, that is, its tax structure is about facilitating the creation of vast quantities of wealth. If that's job one, and we've been doing a fabulous job at it, then we can't be surprised when there's fallout. And so that's what they're trying to get back to. Um, that's why the corridor community battle is so important, because all of a sudden, a mainstream America that even may have voted for Trump is reconsidering this social contract 
with uh, corporations where they privatize the process, uh, profits, but socialize the obligation in long-term health care. Well, the, uh, it, it's good if you make $400,000 uh, a year or more, but the great majority of Americans don't, yet so many of them are still supporting the Republican Party and these programs. Well, well yeah, I'm, I think that one of the things is that um, we see it even reflected here. So in, in the fallout that's going on where retirees, the city retirees are upset because in the initial attempt to move them over to Medicare Advantage, the de Blasio administration um, uh, put forward a plan that required people, if they wanted to hold on to their current care, uh, they'd have to pay $191 a month. And so um, the reality is that there were several thousand city civil servants who are not first responders, who were ordered to their deaths at places like 1 Center Street, 250 Broadway, who are cancer survivors and who have lifelong uh, chronic conditions. And so they're very concerned that they want to keep exactly the specialists that they have, the oncologists they have. And so this undermined that. And they went to court because they were making the contention that this imposition of the premium violated the idea that they would be premium free. And so that is now the city and the MLC are responding to that. The Adams administration has now come up with another thing they believe conforms with this court order. Um, and so we're we're seeing, though, I guess that there's this this question of just what is it worth when the city says that they're going to uh, they keep the terms and conditions of a contract. And it also comes at a time I'm going to tell you where they're having a hard time finding people to work these jobs to keep the city functioning. How do uh, increases in the Federal Reserve Fund's rate and borrowing costs across the country affect state and city budgets? Do governments face the same borrowing hurdles that we do as individuals? Uh, well, yeah. So one of the things about public finance is that it is um, uh, very much connected into interest rates. And so when you want, particularly if you're on your what they call the the infrastructure side, if you're building things, um, if you want to maintain things or part of the physical plan, um, you go and you borrow. And so to do that, you will float bonds. And these bonds generally carry with them, thanks to Robert Moses, uh, some kind of tax deductibility. So if you're very fabulously rich, it's a very great place to to park your fortune and continue to have it to accrue to you. Um, but interest rates affect all of that. And so to the degree to which that interest rates go up, debt service goes up. And that squeezes out other priorities. And so when you have the Federal Reserve signaling a scarcity model, you know, where they go, they when the phrase they use, it always makes gives me the creeps. They're going back to their toolbox. They got a toolbox, Leonard. And in that toolbox is the interest rates. And when they think that wages are going up too high, too fast, that working people might be getting uppity and figuring that, hey, maybe I want to quit my miserable, horrible job with the sexist boss. They want to ratchet down that kind of behavior. And the best way to do that is raise interest rates and cause misery and scarcity all the way around. That's the kind of tool in their toolbox. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org.
guest today is Bob Henley, who reports for WBAI and other public radio stations, for Salon and other news organizations. Uh, his book, Stuck Nation, Can the United States Change Course in Our History of Choosing Profits Over People, is published by Democracy at Work. And Bob, how concerned are you about WBAI's current financial crisis as a, as a member of the group? Well, I, I was heartened by a call that we had with the general manager, um, uh, Bertel Reimer, and the uh, program director, uh, Linda Perry. Um, and uh, I, I think that we're in a situation now, we've had one approach to raising money, which was not to interrupt uh, the broadcast day with a pledge drive per se, where the entirety of the broadcast clock is disrupted to raise money. Um, I think there's an awareness that we're going to have to uh, revert back to the model that worked in the past. Um, and also, uh, I would also uh, say that there's a, a need for us to redouble our efforts to get the word out about this station. And uh, these things aren't going to, you know, we went through a period where we had a central staff at one time of dozens of people. And now it's down to just a few uh, brave individuals. Um, so yeah, I, I'm I'm concerned because the rent, of course, uh, at the transmitter is so expensive. But I do and, sense and the rent involved. to the offices also, which we have to pay for and which we're behind on. Right. The studio. So, so right, I do see um, that uh, that there's the energy to do something about it, and so I guess we're going to have to loop in the listeners. Is this a subtle segue to raising some money, Leonard? Yeah, well, I was, uh, yeah, I wanted to mention uh, our uh, attempt to enlist more BAI buddies, which is uh, one of the things that we're doing. We ask people to become members at any level they're happy with, but also listeners who become BAI buddies for $15 a month uh, or make a $100 contribution to BAI during this Women's History Month can receive the Women's History Collection as our gift. Uh, have you heard about it? It's a great 79-hour yeah, collection of amazing restored audio uh, recordings that date back to the early days of community radio broadcasting in 1949. Right. And, uh, and if you call uh, and would like to have it, you ask for the Women's History Collection when you call 212-209-2950 or go to online to women.wbai.org to become a BAI buddy with Lopate at Large as your favorite show. You might also tell them that you really like uh, Bob Henley. <laughs> <laughs> or can't stand him. Here, I'll become a buddy. Get him off the air. Uh, let's talk about some of the other things you've been writing about recently. Um Jerome Powell has indicated that the Federal Reserve may raise interest rates higher than expected in response to signs of economic strength. Would <laughs> that make a recession more likely? <laughs> I love that. See, well, exactly. Oh, things are getting better. We got to chill yeah. that out. Yeah. I mean, part of the problem here is that the way that we look at the economy has always put the value of money as the single most important thing. And so that means that fluctuations in an abstract actually sidetrack any kind of focus on the underlying things like, say, planetary species survival. And so we're at a point right now, this is an unusual 
economic period because the crisis is not being brought on. We've talked about this before. It's not being brought on by the value of money, but the scarcity of labor. And so the idea that um, we don't have sufficient people uh, for people that have coveted and only live to accumulate money, the idea that people might be the reason why they can't become wealthier and wealthier. Well, that's just very, they're not teaching that at Harvard. Well, what's and been so the response they, of unions? Well, I, I think generally that there's, uh, you do find like Senator Warren and certain uh, progressive pushing back on this tried and true misery of uh, using interest rates like a lash to discipline um, the, the proletariat. But the, the reality here is that the reason why the economy is not expanding in a way that's sustainable is because the the marketplace and late stage vulture capitalism is in the way of people making a living. Let me just give you a couple of examples. There are 2 million women that um, left the workforce as a consequence of being drafted to provide remote education for their children. They are having a hard time getting back into the workforce, though they'd like to, because some 16,000 childcare centers closed. And as it was, childcare was too expensive. And so in the American Recovery Act and everything else we've done, we wanna build those bridges, but we're not helping families restructure the structure that made their lives work. And so if we really wanted to expand the economy, we would get women back to work and let them be captains of their own destiny. It's not, I think you do have to see connected that we have an element in control and command of the country right now and big chunks of it like the Supreme Court who wanna move time back to the 19th century and strip from a moment a right that she enjoyed for some half a century. Talk about the ultimate labor right. I mean, you expect the economy to expand when you're trying to take away a fundamental civil right from half the population that will control and uh, diminish their ability to make their own choices, including whether or not they work. Are Kathy Hochul and Phil Murphy trying to position New York and New Jersey for a possible recession, also Eric Adams uh, in, in New York? Or are there already physical problems that they just simply have to address? Well, so one of the things is that um, we have a system that runs on scarcity. And so you have, uh, for instance, a, a healthcare system which runs on scarcity. And so um, downstream folks that don't have a printing press for money, like state governments and like city governments, um, have to deal with the, uh, the greedy and short-sighted choices made by the federal government. And so they are doing their best to try to balance this um, and and not have, especially when you have the federal government trying to walk away from the long-term investments required to to make up for the fact that there are there are tens of thousands of young young kids who aren't even adults yet, who right after remote education, Leonard, they just walked away. They're not hanging around. They're what we call in social science disconnected youth. Now, you have a small army of them. That army is growing. They kind of show up on the front page of the tabloid, shooting each other occasionally. But a failure to invest in getting them back to school and into a productive life, that will live on for generations in terms of depressed annual income. So that's another example of where the cities and states are being forced into a scarcity mind because we'd rather spend $850 billion on the military and because we also do not want to own up to the fact that we were dealt a body blow with COVID and it's gonna take time to recover. So the states are kind of put into a scarcity mode because the federal government is doing things like pulling the rug out from 
uh, Medicare. There were a number of people that were given the chance to be on Medicare. Now they're going to lose that care because the pandemic is over. Uh, you picked the topic, food stamps. I mean, I'll give credit to Governor Murphy in New Jersey, to their credit, at least at legislature. Uh, though they're in the clutches of commercial interest, they did manage to stabilize food stamps. So we're not going to experience in New Jersey the same draconian drop we've seen in the rest of the country. But it's interesting to compare the budgets. The combined budgets of New York State and New York City uh, add up to around $330 billion, which is six times the state budget of New Jersey, although New York State's population is a little over two times as large. So why are the state and city budgets in New York so much greater? Uh, well, I would say that um, part of it is you have to add in to get a sense of it, the municipal and county government architecture. So um, and in New Jersey, we have 566 municipalities um, with all the hand wringing. Only one township has ever gone out of business uh, uh, Pequari, uh, population of 13. Oh, and the Princeton's merged. That was a big deal. Um, I do think that um, what both states have in common is this multi-tiered level of government. In other parts of the country, you see county governments um, as the effective area, maybe more rural places in red states, for instance, where the county has a lot of the administration of government. Um, here we've got high density in both New York and New Jersey with all kinds of governments. The other thing, too, has been the proliferation of independent authorities and utilities. That's another thing that lags on the productive economy. Um, we have everything like the Port Authority, the Improvement Authority. I mean, if you've got three people that have a municipal flag, they create authorities. But let's look at another major state, California. Its budget is about one-third as large as New York, but its population is twice as large. Is New York State simply overspending, or uh, is uh, Los Angeles less of a problem than New York? Well, and I, I think that it also has to do with the mix of federal funding, too, because um, it's been improved a little bit. But New Jersey and New York historically um, have been uh, exporters of, of money. Uh, California has the same affliction, though. But one of the things you see is that we kind of produce revenue and don't get it back. There are certain states, uh, particularly in the red states. It's kind of ironic because they're the ones that don't like this, the federal government. But they're the ones that benefit from this arrangement, getting over the the dollar, um, you know, uh, well above the dollar that they send down. They get back, you know, a, a quarter or 40 cents back for every dollar they send in addition. So that's some of the deficit that's there. But I also think it's hard to compare um, the two states. Um, I mean, California and New York, I mean, it's, it's very different. Well. We only have a limited time left, and uh, rather than going to some of the other things you've been writing about, uh, I, I was just curious about your take on some of the uh, things that people ask me about all the time, like um, do you think that Fox News is uh, going to come out of this thing uh, <laughs> in decent shape, or, or George Santos, will he make it through the full term? Have you <laughs> thought about those things? Yeah. I Is it you're possible to about, predict those things? Will Donald Trump be arrested for $500? Yeah. Um, uh, I, I do think that, I mean, Fox News, and I like to put those two words together because it's kind of... Uh, um, antithetical. Right, right. I think that what's happening is that um, because of the fact that we degrade, um, 
that we deregulated the airwaves. So one of the things that happened is that when it came to cable and broadcast, historically, when it was just broadcast, there was actually a, a moral character standard to be able to hold a broadcast license. You had to be an upstanding, truthful person and broadcasting a broadcasting license was considered a privilege because the airwaves belong to the American people. Isn't that an old-fashioned concept? And we were afraid That's that communists might have a radio station or a television. Well, that. what ended up happening was that over time, broadcast licenses became property rights. And so you had the requirement for news watered down, the equal time provision eroded. There were many uh, journalist professionals who were able to be employed by a station because of a public affairs department. All of that was eliminated so that we could be about the most important thing, which is the creation of vast amounts of wealth. That's the job of America, always has been, just ask the Native people. And what about George Santos? Does it matter whether he stays in Congress or not? Well, I think that uh, it is causing some consensus among, um, you know, you're seeing Mitt Romney and other Republicans stand up on this one because he is so outrageous. Um, I do think that he's an important lesson uh, to the anemic nature of the Democratic Party in New York. The fact that he was able to be um, a, such a fabulous uh, and not get detected um, shows you, and it's also important to understand that uh, New York failed miserably to get out its base. The Democratic Party um, just didn't do that. In states where it, employ, it employed and engaged um, people that are low wage, um, people that are low wealth, people that are in that really felt COVID. When they got people out like that in Pennsylvania and Michigan, you saw the results, right? So, I mean, in, that's in, the, the that you had great success for Democrats here in New York and California, New Jersey. They lost ground because they weren't speaking to the people who were in struggle, who um, were looking for something real from the Democratic Party. In the just about a minute we have left, is there another topic you think that is going to that's on the horizon that we're going to be talking about the next time you come on the show? I do believe that East Palestine will now morph into a consideration of Love Canal. That as time goes on, details will emerge that will show that Norfolk Southern more likely was involved with a criminal obstruction to a hazardous material response and failed to represent properly and accurately and truthfully to first responders to what they were dealing with. And can we find out why it's East Palestine and not East Palestine? <laughs> I mean, it is. The East Palestine seems less exotic and you don't get implicated with the meat. Uh, okay. Uh, Was that pretty good? I mean, yes. <laughs> we don't write these questions down in advance. Wait, wait. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, it's like Houston Reggie, and Houston. Reggie points out it's Houston and Houston. That's the way things are. Okay. Well, Bob right. Henley, uh, thank you so much for being Pleasure. on our show. We'll be tuning in on Monday morning. What time? Uh, 7 a.m. 7 a.m. Right. For another show. And meanwhile, checking you out on Salon. And that's Stuck Nation because we surely are. Uh-huh. And uh, don't forget that the book is called Stuck Nation, Can the United States Change Course on Our History of Choosing Profits Over People? It's published by Democracy at Work. Bob, as always, it's been a great pleasure talking to you, even though 
we talk about things that are so upsetting to me. Great. All right. Thanks so much, Leonard. Thanks, Reddy. Take care. And that brings us to the end of our show. My great thanks to our executive producer, Kaziah Glow, and to our audio engineer, Reggie Johnson, for all of the invaluable work that they do throughout the week. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed over 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, um, as I was discussing with Bob, we need to ask you to support BAI to keep the station coming to you and the show coming to you as well. Um, we are right now going through a rough financial time. COVID really hit us hard. And we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's give and the number to WBAI.org or give to WBAI.org. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique, in-depth content information you don't usually get anywhere else. Uh, but uh, we wonder about becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, which allows us to plan for the future. If you become a BAI buddy for $15 or more a month, uh, or make a $100 contribution to WBAI during this year's Women's History Month, you can receive, as our gift to you, a great 79-hour collection of restored audio recordings dating back to the earliest days of community radio broadcasting in 1949. They've been culled from over six seasons of weekly radio programs from WBAI and our sister stations in the Pacifica Radio Network. So ask for the Women's History Collection when you call us at 212-209-2950 or in this case, go online to women wbai.org to become a BAI buddy with Lopate at Large as your favorite show. And here's WBAI's program director, Linda Perry Barr, with more about that. to listener sponsor WBAI New York with a moment in women's history. Grace Paley is familiar to longtime WBAI listeners. I think someone had said something about how the old anti-war movement thought if we were all nice, everything would change. But the truth is, many people spent many years in jail. Tens of thousands of people lived in exile for many years. There are probably hundreds underground to this day. Haley helped found the Vietnam Peace Center in 1961. She visited Hanoi as a member of a peace delegation. Groups of people from the, from the uh, anti-war peace movement went to Vietnam during the war with an arrangement uh, with the Vietnamese government to bring back American prisoners of war. This was uh, the idea of the, of the uh, Vietnamese to really show that they would like to end the war 
and they were sending these guys back, three, four at a time. And they were all pilots, they were all officers. There was an officer class. And they asked only one thing, and that was that these pilots uh, not be used again during the war, and that they not have any association with the Air Force. Uh, within six months of their return, the United States government had them teaching other pilots and uh, con continuing their old work. It was clear from that that the United States had no intentions of ending that war. The reason I'm telling you this is because I think the whole Iranian business is exactly the same thing. The celebrated writer and peace activist was forever making connections between the past and the present. Grace Paley once said there's no point in getting older if you can't say something about what happened earlier. We're living right now at a time where the United States government could have gotten out of the whole thing very easily. In the 70s, Paley turned her attention to the anti-nuclear movement. She once said for a writer not to be political is peculiar. She was interested in a history of everyday life. She was one of the earliest writers to explore the lives of women, mostly Jewish, mostly New Yorkers, with a focus on single mothers. You can receive our Women's History audio collection with Grace Paley and other trailblazers by becoming a WBAI buddy, a sustaining member for $15 a month. You'll also receive our fabulous tote bag for all your belongings when you're out and about. Please go to women.wbai.org, women.wbai.org to become a WBAI buddy in the name of your favorite program or in the name of all WBAI programs or in the name of WBAI's long history of activism and programming you enjoy. Please call 212 209-2950 and say yes I want to become a WBAI buddy this Women's History Month and I hope you'll call right now because WBAI relies completely on listener donations we don't take ads or foundation grants which allows us to be completely free speech radio so if you tune in regularly to Lend It Located at Large, why not let us know that you appreciate what we do on this program by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to play a part in keeping this historic station, the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, alive and thriving. But also, uh, might, as I said, you could be a BAI buddy and uh, go online to women.wbai.org or call 212-209-2950. I hope you can join us again on Monday when we'll be discussing this year's Socially Relevant Film Festival. We'll see you then. Have a great weekend.